And welcome to episode 58 of the Retrospectives podcast. My name is Patrick Arthur and I'm joined as always by James Turlings to discuss Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines. James, after all these years or after all these episodes, we're finally doing another RPG. What made you decide to do this one? And thank you in advance for not making me play a JRPG. <laughs> well, it wasn't a really difficult choice. In fact, my uh, my roommate had been pestering me to play this for, you know, the uh, the prior two years of doing the show. So I thought, you know, I didn't particularly have an urge to play the game i just wanted to walk past him without him mentioning the damn thing (laughs) yeah it it was a game that i'd been interested for ages but hadn't quite put the um put the effort in to actually give it a fair crack so i'm really glad this podcast gave me an opportunity to explore it uh because i think i think it's a very flawed game but a very interesting one um in part because of those flaws so i'm looking forward to discuss it um we are of course the retrospectors podcast each and every fortnight james and i play a classic game of the past from start to finish with the intention of reviewing and discussing it from a modern perspective we're not interested in how good these games were when they first released uh we don't want to understand the context um of these games and you know their evolutionary line or anything like that we simply want to know if it's a true classic if it stood the test of time and it's worth your time to play today the world of bloodlines is based off a tabletop role-playing game called vampire the masquerade um, which was a big big role-playing game uh, that was released in the 90s Uh, It's not exactly the same. There are a lot of changes, but um, a lot of the characters are transposed in much the same way that uh, Cyberpunk 2077 took a lot of cues from the Cyberpunk tabletop role-playing game. Um, Over the course of the game, you interact with many different factions in a fictionalized take on Los Angeles, and you come into it as a brand new vampire. So um, you've just been embraced and turned into a vampire, and the whole world is new to you. So we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about the story, the world, um, and all the characters and how the game actually plays. But before we do that, let's dig into how we actually played the game. Um, James, you were saying before that uh, you played with GOG, which included an unofficial patch. Yeah, so I played the GOG version. Um, There's actually two unofficial patches uh, floating about around the place. There is the basic patch which comes with a bunch of bug fixes and quality of life changes um, which you know most people that I've spoken to and read online think that this is basically mandatory um, for getting the game to run on you know modern systems Uh, it comes pre-installed in the GOG version um, so you just you know hit install and then play there's also the plus patch which has you know a lot of extra features that the community kind of sees as maybe going a bit too far. Like in the end, the modders kind of took it beyond the original vision of the game. So that's kind of an optional thing. But it does include um, one particular feature that I would like to mention. Um, halfway through the game, there is this particularly, I'm going to say, outright bad uh, portion of gameplay that you are actually able to skip entirely using the plus patch. So maybe do your research and see if you want to play the game, you know, debate whether this is kind of worth the trade-offs or not. Um, But other than that, I got it to work. Um, I did have a couple of problems with the game, however. Um, 
you know, the game was a bit buggy, although I think this is the case across all of the versions of the game. Um, multiple times throughout my save, I ended up in a state where trying to leave a building would instantly crash my game, uh, and I'd have to reload saves further and further back until I could figure out which one uh, was had not become corrupted yet. And then, you know, play through all that gameplay again, so then I could leave a building. Uh, I also had a couple of issues where my character would, like, half fall through the floor. Um, in general, I think this game is, like, one of the very first that came out on the original Source engine. So it's a bit of a janky mess, um, to say the least. So I played on the Steam version, and I installed the basic unofficial patch. So we were basically playing on the same, same version as just yours came pre-patch. Um, it's interesting when we, you know, when we decide to review these games, we generally try and get something close to the original version with mainly at most quality of life fixes. And I think in this case, that's all you really want to do because even though the, um, as James said, a lot of people feel that the changes and alterations they made to the original basically transforms it into a completely new game, which of course is very cool and everything. But at that stage, you're not really reviewing Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines. You're reviewing a separate entity. Um, in terms of bugs, the big one I had was the field of view resetting. The default field of view on this game is something atrocious, like 54. Like, I, I don't know why they set that as a default field of view. Like, that's going to be bad even if you're playing on a TV screen. Uh, and when I got out certain weapons, particularly the style org, it just immediately reset to 54. But luckily enough, um, Steam console commands make it fairly easy to uh, to revert. Um, the biggest issue I had came with the, um, there's a section in the sewers where you fall down a, um, a drain pipe, like it kind of sucks you in. And then you're getting pushed along and need to get on a ladder to get out or you get chewed up by these thresher blades. And every time I went down into that drain, it got me stuck in third person and I couldn't go up the ladder, couldn't do anything. Mm -hmm. And I just went to the thresher automatically and there's literally nothing I can do. Luckily, once again, it's a Steam game, so I've got access to console commands. So I was able to just quickly no clip out of the water there, drop myself down on the ground, and then I was fine. So, um, yeah, like that would be a game-ending bug, and I'd rage quit the game and never play it again, if not for the fact that it's a source game and there's uh, easy console commands around the issue. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, this game is pretty buggy, to be honest. Uh, I don't think it's so much that I would tell somebody not to play the game, um, but if that does sound like the kind of thing that would infuriate you, maybe consider your purchase. If you do nothing else, you have to install the unofficial patch uh, because while these bugs that James and I encountered were annoying, the game without the patch is in a lot of ways unplayable. Like the scripting breaks all over the place and to the point where you can be soft locked from continuing to play the game. So uh, I didn't encounter any soft locks with the scripting. Uh, so, and it, it fixes that. So at the very least, make sure you install that without it. It's going to be a complete nightmare. Okay, so I think with that done, uh, we should start talking about this video game. So the first place to start, logical place to start, is to is to talk about the world of Vampire: The Masquerade Bloodlines. So it's set in a, as I said earlier, in a fictionalized take on modern day Los Angeles, and by modern day Los Angeles, I mean like two thousand and two, early two thousands Los Angeles, the time in which this game was released. 
Um, it's an urban fantasy setting. So you've got vampires and werewolves and magic and uh, kind of the the kinds of magic and fantasy that exists on the edges of humanity's perception. When there's a fear of the dark, uh, that's where the fantasy kind of lies. The first thing I want to talk about this world is that I think that it's a world that makes a lot of sense, which seems like a silly thing to be saying when it's so fantastical. But I think Troika with Vampire did a really good job kind of tying in these mythical concepts of vampires and trying to examine how they would actually exist in our world. And they do that by um, making the vampires, I guess, closely tied to criminal activity because the whole game is set at nighttime. Um, you, vampires can't go out in the daylight. So vampires are tied to all the things related to the seedy underside of a city, you know, pornography, strip clubs, um, criminal activity. And it's a very natural fit, crime lords and vampires. There's also the whole thing, vampires are highly intelligent, vampires have lived a long time, so it makes sense that if they've lived a long time and they're in society, that they would arise to positions of power to control um, things from the shadows, as it were. James, I'm sure there's lots of things to talk about um, with the world, but th that was the first thing I wanted to ask you about. How did you feel about the world, and did it grip you in the same way it gripped me? Well, I think that the obvious thing to me um, is that this is obviously a game that was made based on a fairly rich set of background lore. Um, we've played games in the past where the writing kind of feels like they wrote pages and pages and pages and pages and then only, you know, actually put 10% of that into the game. But because it was done that way, um, the game kind of feels like richer and more natural as a result. This is obviously the case here, right? Being based off a tabletop RPG to begin with, there was already, you know, years of material to work with. And I think they've done a really good job, like you said, of making everything feel like natural. Um, lots of the characters, um, you know, kind of interact with you in these interesting ways. Like one of my favorite things in the game uh, is this idea that a lot of the vampires kind of because you know you when you become a vampire you're kind of exposed to this new supernatural realm like all of these fantastical beings and events that you know was kind of happening under the surface of reality is now you know in the forefront of your life um, and so for these people there's kind of this weird uh, middle ground gray area where you don't really know what supernatural thing from mythology is now real and what isn't and they kind of go into into detail about this with a lot of character conversation i really enjoyed that aspect of the game this idea that lots of vampires are really superstitious overly superstitious even and kind of chasing after these like silly mythologies um, and so there are a lot of these vampire characters who are trying to, like, understand the nature of their existence through a more, like, I guess, scientific kind of point of view, other than, you know, everyone else who's also almost in these, like, cultish behaviours. It's a very naturalistic way of doing these things. Um, if you suddenly discovered that vampires are real, well, you'd suddenly start questioning every other aspect of your existence. So having both people who have a view the world through a supernatural lens and also having people who view the world through a scientific lens is great. Um, there's even a little joke about it where um, where your character is tricking someone and you tell them to um, 
to find a unicorn horn to stab <laughs> uh, to stab the he- head mega vampire in the heart because and he says well how can you believe in vampires but not unicorns like it's all the same yeah i thought it was really cool as well um something that immediately stuck out to me when we started playing this game was the like limited scope that this game takes place in like this is a a semi open world game that takes place across four little hubs like you've got four smaller openish areas but the like the scale that this world takes place in is actually quite compact you know if you've played a lot of like open world rpgs it feels kind of like tiny by comparison but what this means is that the world is jam-packed full of little details everywhere you don't have these big open spaces with nothing in them like every 10 feet there's something interesting i felt like uh the these spaces if you look at them too closely, you get this kind of weird feeling that they're wrong because all the proportions are just way too small. Um, but in general, I think that this approach that they've taken where they've, you know, kind of shrunk everything down and really focused on making, you know, uh, getting every last drop out of it is something I've really enjoyed. Yeah, and we'll get more into it later, but I think a big part of that is the characters and the characterizations. Um they're not just places, they're places where these characters reside and they're places that these characters own and they're brought to life essentially by these characters. It's not just we're putting a random outpost with some generic NPCs in here. It's this is the Elysium nightclub and it's run by um, by these two twin sisters. And you get when you think of that place, you think of the sisters and the whole place takes on a character and personality of its own. I agree completely. Um, if I have learned anything in these past two weeks about this game, it's that Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines is a game about characters and about people um, more than anything else. Um, this game more than any I've played in a long time, uh, has NPCs with dialogue and characterization and personality that really jumps out of the screen at you. You really associate the places you go to with the characters. And because of this, you know, uh, it feels so much more alive. Like, uh, this is a game where you have conversations with NPCs and, you know, where it zooms into their face and you get a bunch of dialogue options to the bottom, maybe like Elder Scrolls is a good comparison point. Um, but this game, because of the small scope that I mentioned earlier, it feels like where a game like something like Skyrim or Oblivion has this giant world filled with, you know, a thousand NPCs, this game has like a small world with like a dozen NPCs who are all like brilliantly brought to life through some handcrafted facial animation and really well written dialogue. It's like they've taken the huge scope, shrunk it down, and you know, just made the most out of every single NPC in this game. It's really quite something. It is the full package. Um, these are some of the best characterizations I've seen in any game ever. Um, the dialogue is very sharp and to the point and very different for each and every character. Um, the facial expressions bring them to life and there's a huge variety of them to suit the character you're speaking to. The voice acting is fucking amazing. Like this is 10 out of 10 voice acting and um, every character is has their own set of motivations that you can see that's driving them and they have a clear reason to push push for their dialogue in the way that they do and what's more it's not like there are 
four characters that are excellent and then the rest are, you know, okay. Every single character in this game is excellent. And there's always standouts, but even the most minor of minor merchant characters still delivers a stunning performance. Um, I agree with you, James. The characters bring this game to life and they bring the RPG aspect of the game to life. I kind of want to do a little focus in on the character animation specifically. Like in a lot of big games, like with character dialogue like this, they have kind of like canned facial rigs and that they just kind of like play halfway through um you know a sentence uh each character has their own set of distinct facial animations uh as you know opposed to every other character in the game so it makes them feel very distinct like to put this like in perspective i feel like this game has better facial animation than most games coming out over the last like decade and this game came out what like early 2000s it's really quite something i'm kind of shocked honestly that other games haven't tried to do it to this degree like uh it just adds so much personality and believability even though visually the game's a little dated you know the text drain's pretty muddy um you know everything's kind of blocky because it's you know, just from that era but everybody's face is so expressive and so alive their eyes move around they look you in the eye when they talk they look away and shrug their head they move then you know head around a lot it's really really expressive and you know it's pretty exaggerated i'd say like they do take it you know to the next level past the point that a normal human would emote but it adds so much personality i really love the way they've done it here yeah i want to say that there's not much subtlety to it but um the exaggeration doesn't end up hurting it too much and i think that a large reason for that is that the dialogue and the um the voice acting performance is so impeccable that it carries it through the exaggerated uh, animations. Um, yeah, you, you don't see, I mean, it's certainly better than something like the ridiculous grimacing of LA Noir, I have to say, but then I guess it's not trying to, um, to convey the same thing. I got to say, I think the animations are good, but for me, it's the voice acting and the dialogue, which, uh, which carries the day. So yeah, I think all three were excellent. Um, but for me, the animation kind of wins out. I feel like this is something special. This is like a game that takes, you know, one-on-one -on -one conversation and just elevates it to something, you know, really unique. Um, I think that it's almost just worth playing this game for that alone, in my opinion. I, I don't want to say the animation is bad. I'm just saying that, yeah, like I said, you, you said it was exaggerated and I agree. Um, but the, the facial expressions aren't bad by any stretch. I just um, think you're maybe overselling them. Okay, okay. Um, I think that all three are top-notch, to be honest. I don't think we're i don't think either of us are arguing against that like it's really good stuff from start to finish um i just had a couple more notes about the broader world that i wanted to dive into um the first is that one of the recurring kind of themes in vampire uh, the masquerade bloodlines is politics and deception and one of the things that the world does really good is it kind of unpeels uh in layers the deeper you kind of investigate and the deeper you look things that look innocuous on first blush when you progress further through quest lines or dig a bit deeper unlock some doors hack some computers you can suddenly delve into the darker far darker and seedier sides of all of these establishments so i liked as a world building device how you 
gradually um, got in deeper and darker um, the further you went through the game. And there's multiple examples of that. I'll just give a couple of quick ones. I don't want to spoil anything. So these are kind of minor side quest things. Like uh, you'll find things like there's a, there's just an ordinary hotel, but if you go down into the basement, you can see that the owner of the hotel is a peeping creep and he set up cameras in all these rooms and he's got notes about all of the people who live in the rooms and he's obviously selling these videotapes off um, sex tapes and the like. Um, and I really like that, you know, you unlock a door and you get you get all this extra detail that you wouldn't have normally got access to. It's a great bit of world building. In And in RPG games, you often just get that surface level, you know, the world is how it is. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think the primary draw of this genre is trying to have that kind of deeper level uh, character writing. Um, but I do agree with you that, you know, it does add a lot to the world building. You had another point, though? Uh, yeah, um, I wanted to briefly bring up um, the notion of sexuality. So the game obviously takes place in um, in a seedy version of Los Angeles. You know, you've got strippers and hookers, you've got strip clubs, um, you've got people talking about sex tapes and trying to sell you sex tapes. They even go into stuff as dark as snuff tapes. Um, broadly speaking, I think this is all great. If you're going to depict the world as it is, then you have to depict those aspects of the world. I did have a minor criticism, though, which is that I, that I think that women are overly sexualized in this game compared to men. And I think that this game was a really good opportunity to sexualize men and women equally. Uh, vampires and their sexuality should transcend whether they're men or women to you know vampires only really care about blood and um i mean there's, there are characters in the game that are trying to use sex to their advantage so i think that it kind of started to veer towards titillation a little bit to the way that all of the women characters were often wearing lingerie and were sex objects but the men really weren't so that kind of struck me the wrong way you know just just have everyone equally sexualized and i think that the world is better for it yeah i mean vampires have been sexualized for as long as they've existed in fiction right like they're mm -hmm. very uh they're very passionate beings you know uh, all throughout the game yeah, so we just needed more men with shirts off. I mean, double down on the sexuality, and but you got to do it in both directions. That's all I'm saying, because it is appropriate for the world to have that stuff. Um, did you want to talk about the factions a little bit, James? Yeah, so the factions in this game are, I'm going to say, probably one of the weaker aspects to me, honestly. So to give you a bit of backstory, the game begins with you being embraced, becoming a vampire for the first time, but you're turned into a vampire in a way that kind of goes against the vampire's internal laws, right? Vampire society has a somewhat loose set of laws that kind of enable them to exist, you know, under, in the shadows, away from human eyes, because obviously if people found them, they would, you know, burn them at the stake. Um, so vampire's society has loosely, collectively made a set of rules that, you know, governs how they can act in public in order to kind of preserve you know, them as a species. So there are two factions in this game that are kind of at odds at each other. Um, the first one uh, is the Camarilla. These uh, are a group of vampires that are kind of trying to be like a ruling class, um, you know, to bring order and justice uh, across vampire society. And, you know, in their opposite corner uh, are the Anarchs, who are much more uh, like a rough 
gang type of vampire who, you know, thinks that while there should be some kind of rules, there shouldn't be so tightly, you know, there shouldn't be like the equivalent of a vampire government, basically. They should be able to, as a community, organize themselves and protect themselves. And they kind of like really don't like each other. Um, and you get this impression over the course of the story. Um, for me, I really didn't like either of these factions, to be honest. I liked the idea of them but in practice like the anarchs in particular kind of came across as me as being like whiny teenagers who just wanted to rebel for the sake of it i found it kind of annoying uh interacting with these characters for the most part i thought they were really just kind of like juvenile in their attitude um and the camarilla there's basically you know the main character that you interact with uh um sebastian lacroix uh who is the leader of the camarilla um, kind of is a bit of an ass himself, so I felt like no matter who I was working for at any given time, I wasn't entirely, you know, happy with what I was doing. Yeah, so I agree with you. I think that while the Camarilla was able to make good arguments for his case, LaCroix was able to say, you know, we need a sense of order, we, we can't just do whatever we want. The Anarchs were very hostile to anyone to to when i asked them questions i was like well how does your society work like you have to justify anarchy anarchy is this radical concept that you can absolutely make a justification for and explain but you have to persuade people that it makes sense and the anarchs weren't interested in explaining why anarchy was a good thing or a good way to run a vampire society and i think that was their downfall it's like well if you'd like me to join your group you have to try a little bit harder but in the end you know LaCroix is just such an asshole and is manipulating you the entire game that I mean you almost feel obliged to join them by default so yeah I, I think that um I think that the factions are potentially a lot more interesting but we didn't get a real sophisticated fight you know argument between those two ideals yeah, it's like a really poor implementation of a like order versus chaos kind of um, system that I didn't really get into that much. Like, it's kind of saved by the fact that the individual characters and writing is so strong. Um, but like as a cohesive unit, none of these factions kind of worked for me. It was especially bad as one of the most convincing characters in the Anarchs, um, Isaac, who is basically the Baron of Hollywood. Um, is one of the most reasonable characters in the story, but he seemingly has some kind of political power over the area, which seems kind of like at odds to the idea of the Anarchs in my mind, unless like that's just a label they were given by the Camarilla. Like the moment I met Isaac, I was like, I don't understand why this character uh, is against the idea of, you know, order. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, well, I, I didn't have a problem with that. To me, um, Isaac represented uh, an anti-Camarilla faction and not a tr and he wasn't a true anarch. He, he seemed to be a very he seemed like a businessman right he was he was he was acting in the interests of himself and his own faction and at the time that coincided with what the anarchs were doing which was to be opposed to the camarilla i think that 
thinking of it in terms of order versus chaos isn't quite right. Yeah. Um, it's more that the Anarchs opposed the uh, the pyramid scheme that they that they called it because one of the things that Camarilla's can the Camarilla was doing was that they were controlling who could and who couldn't become a vampire. So as a result, these old vampires would make fledglings at their will or would grant the ability to create fledglings to others in exchange for favors. And it was all about power. And the Anarchs fundamentally opposed this idea that anyone could impose you know, the right to do fledgling or not on anyone else and that they could collectively as a society just agree to, um, to you know, not violate the masquerade because it's just common sense anyway. It just kind of seemed odd to me that Isaac was a character who immediately upon meeting him exercised his power by having you do some menial chore just to, you know, to acknowledge his power, right? This is the exact thing the Anarchs hate about LaCroix. So why don't they hate it here? Is it because he's, I don't know, a better guy? Um, You don't really get to see these characters interact with each other. Um, And like, as you said, that's kind of the weakest part, right? Like that these factions, they all interact with each other through you. They all tell you what they think, but you never get to sit back and watch them fight one-on-one or something to that effect. Yeah, there, I mean, there's definitely a hypocrisy there to to Isaac and the way he acts. Um, I agree with you. He's not acting like a true anarch, but he is acting how... he. It, to me, that's okay. He's taking advantage of the system. He's showing that regardless of what... Regardless if you get rid of the Camarilla or not, people are still going to rise to positions of power. And I think the Anarch's main point of contention was that who should, you know, the right to enforce these laws and the right to determine who creates fledglings for others. I agree with you that we get very little on the details of these different philosophies, and that's a weakness of the game. But Isaac doesn't necessarily represent a contradiction. He maybe just represents the reality of what would occur if the Camarilla didn't exist. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. Uh, He, into the end of the day, he was one of the characters I did like the most. So the other thing I wanted to bring up is that while the different, basically my my short-term take, my short version take on the factions is that I think that while the characters in the factions were excellent, the actual conceptualization of the factions was kind of underexplored. Um, and I think that's in ways that, I think this comes through in more ways than just the story. Um, there's a lack of gameplay flow on from the existence of these factions. There's no real way to align yourself with a faction against other faction or play them against one another um, or, you know, there's a quest that both factions are vying for and you go for one option and screw over the other. None of that really exists. And I think the reason this I, I would identify this as a problem is that so much of the game is about how you're a pawn and you're being manipulated by different sides. And by the end of the game, you know, you've risen to a position of power and you make a decision about which way the world is going to go but you don't actually have any power to do anything you are just a pawn being manipulated and it would have been nice if there was a way a gameplay way whether it was you know doing things for certain people or unlock unlocking specific factional merchants or getting tidbits on story that you weren't otherwise able to get um by 
choosing a side to support but unfortunately it doesn't really matter and it only you only get to make a decision at the very end of the game i found in general that a lot of the choices in fact were more illusory than anything um some it kind of jumped out at me uh most obviously when i was stuck on a boss fight and i was reloading my save and most boss fights start with a big you know conversation that you have to go through each and every time you know you reload a save to do the boss again uh, and i noticed quite obviously that half the time well like the vast majority of the time you know when a boss would say something you'd get like three dialogue options and no matter what you picked you know, the conversation would go the same way every time, even if the dialogue was, you know, really substantially different. I think this kind of, like, illusion of choice is present all throughout the game. And while there definitely is uh, an amount of choice in the quests, and there is, you know, things you can change depending on what you, you know, your stats that you've got on your character sheet, uh, I do think that the limited scope of the game, you know, kind of destroys the illusion of choice very obviously in a few key parts and i think this thing that you've mentioned you know not being able to you know ditch Lacroix and be like actually i think the anarchs make more sense i'm going to go work with them for a while uh, you never really get to do that so um i also kind of found this to be a little disappointing if i'm going to be honest because i thought that uh, I would be able to vastly sway the direction of the story depending on what was going on, but that just was not the case. I think that most of the choice you get comes from the side quests, actually. And side quests can play out, a lot of them can play out a number of different ways. Some of them are simpler than others, but a lot of them give you, you know, a, a different way to play out, non-violent ways to play them out. And um, I think that for the most part, they did a really good job. Uh, it's rarely as, I guess, in terms of like gameplay choice in these quests, it's rarely as good as something like The Witcher. The Witcher games do a really good job of presenting you with these shades of grey scenarios and then you have to, you know, pick the option and they can all be legitimate, you know, versions of what a Witcher may or may not do. Um, there's a bit less of that, but it's still fine. I think there's plenty of choice in the side quests, at least. Yeah, again, I think that this game falls into the trap a lot of you know RPGs do, where what ends up happening is the, the destination that you get to at the end is always the same, and it's just kind of like the way that you get there. Um, you know, you'll have a conversation with a person and you want them to do something for you, um, and no matter what you do, they end up doing the thing for you. It's just a matter of, like, did you persuade them? Did you intimidate them? Or did you give them some money? The destination's always the same, but the way you get there changes. And to me, that's not quite as good. Um, you don't really get that satisfaction of feeling like, you know, you had impact on the world. Um, I think that this is one of those kinds of games where the side quests are just so much better than the main plot. Um, you kind of just like get lost doing side quests for hours and on end and you know I'm being critical here but on the whole I like really enjoyed the vast majority of the side quests I did um, I just think that you know the choice is kind of like not as deep as I would have wanted it to be well where I would say the side quests and the quests in general excel is in their presentation of story 
like not the actions you're taking, but the journey you're being taken upon. And I mean, this is a main quest line, um, and I won't go into too much detail to avoid spoilers. But I, there's um there's this like extensive quest in Hollywood where you're basically trying to chase down this snuff tape, and there's more to it than that. But everything about that quest was amazing. There were all these hidden details and it built up and up and um, you got to really see this really seedy, ugly side of Los Angeles. And I really, really enjoyed it. Was there much choice for me? Not really. Was I role playing fundamentally different? No. As James said, a lot of the time it's, you know, do I have a persuade skill high enough? Oh, ah, well, I guess I'll shoot them in the head. But the actual narrative that you were being taken along was fascinating, and it's something I enjoyed a lot. Yeah, the 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 quest design in this game is kind of interesting, and in that the world, the hub world, is really small, um, and densely packed. Like I said, so what they do to get around this for the side quests is that oftentimes uh, missions for the main story and the side quests will take you to these like instanced areas. So you'll you know teleport or you take a taxi to this you know a level that's apparently downtown and they'll just have these huge standalone levels for you to explore like one of my favorite ones in the whole game uh actually i think it's part of the main quest um is that there is this haunted house by the beach so and you're asked to kind of go there and you know deal with the spirit and get it to go away so you take a taxi and you end up in this you know this haunted house and you go through the haunted house and it's like a really excellent like horror section where um they do a really good job of like building tension and making it seem kind of, it's like I guess uh, it's kind of reminds me of like a shooter design from like the like almost like the COD games. Like it's really theme parky and on rails almost. Um, and you get put in these kinds of situations all the time. And I think the presentation uh, and the, the attention to detail, like you mentioned, is really good throughout the vast majority of them with a couple notable sour spots later in the game. Yeah, that level is spooky. I bunny hopped so I wouldn't get scared. I, I was talking about this on a Discord server earlier, but I really kind of get spooked pretty easily by horror games. And my way to avoid getting spooked is to try and not get immersed so I'll bunny hop around and spin my mouse around and be like, I'm just playing a game. It's all good. I'm just playing a game. <laughs> and that game came, I mean, this game came out in 2004 and I still found it super spooky. So it was a very effective sequence. And it's not just that one. Most of the instanced areas are really well designed um, and quite enjoyable. There are some ones that are quite bad. Um, notably in the downtown hub, the second hub you go to, there's this quest that takes you into this underground car park where two gangs are kind of having like a deal and you've got to go and you've got to steal the briefcase that they're kind of trading between each other and it's just like get into a vent to crawl past the guards get out of the vent get into the vent to crawl past the guards get out of the event you do that like not like 10 times you do that like i gotta say it's like 15 20 times um it's like insanely repetitive i was like shocked at you know compare that to the crazy spooky mansion on the beach um and you know something really fun like uh the i think the chinatown temple was also quite well done um i liked the um the house with all the secret doors um yeah the head of the grout i think his name was that was probably my favorite area the sword 
Sorry. The sword from Thief, but in this game. <laughs> I mean, the sword's on a whole nother level. Yeah. I think this the the sword was exploratory. This the the one in Grout's Mansion it's like was on rails. a linear sequence. Yeah, yeah, it's like, but it was still extremely well done, very atmospheric and spooky. Yeah, and it had some great voice work too on that particular level. So on the whole, oh, it's so good. Yeah, it's so good. Um, I think the side quests are quite fun um and you get to do go to a lot of crazy places and do a lot of crazy things um i kind of mentioned it before in the bug section um there's actually like a whole part of the mod that lets you skip one of these um because it's just so fucking atrocious uh i've heard about this level previously from many people and i was you know it ended up being worse than i thought it was gonna be um, so, like, midway through the game, you end up doing this, like, you have to go through these sewers to find, you know, this hidden clan of vampires that are hiding deep in the sewers, and it just goes on and on and on and on forever. It took me, like, what, like a couple hours to get through these fucking sewers, uh, and it was just, like, bland and repetitive, and there was so much janky combat, I just, you know, I had to stop playing the game for a day after doing that shit. Yeah, so that seems like a good place to have a break, because in short, I'd say the reason you didn't enjoy that, James, is because it was light on story and heavy on gameplay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so let's, let's have a music break, and then um, we'll talk about how this game actually plays. So, James, did you have a uh, piece of music you wanted to uh, wanted to share with us? Yeah, so I quite liked the soundtrack for this game. It's, like, moody and atmospheric, perfectly fitting for this, like, dark vampire game that takes place in the middle of the night, which seemingly goes forever um, if this game is to be believed. There is no day-night cycle. There's just the endless night. Um, but I think the, the soundtrack kind of matched that really well um i personally preferred all of like the ambient soundtracks over the combat in this game probably because i associate the uh the combat soundtracks with the combat um <laughs> but in general the soundtrack does a really good job of being like dark and moody for the most part uh my favorite piece of music on the soundtrack was probably the chinatown theme which i think managed to mix in a lot of eastern oriental kind of sounding instruments throughout the theme and still have it be on point with that dark vampire aesthetic so uh, i'd like to share with that for you guys now so here is the chinatown theme
That was the Chinatown theme. Pat, how did you feel about the music? I love the music, man. It has been a long time since we've played a game that has ambient music this strong. Uh, It's wonderful. If you play any of those songs, I immediately know which hub it is. And it's just got that slow rhythmic feel to it you know with little bits little bits of noise and here and there you know whether it's the ringing of bells or you know the the sounds of a car alarm going off or whatever it is but there's aspects of every single ambient theme in all the hubs that's great um i also want to shout out that all of the different nightclubs because you know the game set at midnight it's always midnight um you go into one of the things that's open in all these hubs are nightclubs so you go into a lot of nightclubs over the course of the game and i think that the music and the nightclubs both had a decent amount of variety and was generally good music the you know generally better than the stuff you'd hear in a random nightclub if you went out clubbing today so um yeah i uh i enjoyed the music a lot and like you i thought the ambient themes were fantastic uh really good stuff love the soundtrack all right so let's talk a bit about the gameplay because as we alluded to it's a bit of a mixed bag here which ranges from like okay to downright awful sometimes i think um so vampire the masquerade bloodlines is an rpg Um, So everything that you can do in the world is determined by your stats. Um, You know, you've got stats for, you know, being able to use guns. Well, you know, if you have no stats in your guns, your aim is dreadful. Uh, You have to sit there and wait for your crosshair to shrink in order to get one shot off. Um, And until about, I reckon, like five points in guns, it's pretty much unusable. Um, You have melee combat, which... When you go into melee combat in this game, it like zooms out from first person and you go into like this weird third person view where you like mash the mouse click button to swing, you know, your wrench. Um, There is stealth and, you know, your stealth ranges from being useless to being invisible at like three points into stealth. Well, it depends on the enemies. It becomes broken pretty early on. And then you have a whole bunch of spells. Now, one thing that's cool about this game is that there are a whole bunch of different clans of vampires. And at the very beginning of the game, um, you get to choose uh, which vampire clan you pick to play as. So I picked uh, Clan Tremere which uh, focuses all on magic. So we had some really powerful magic abilities. For example, at level one, I had this ability to just put someone to sleep for like 10 seconds, which was extremely powerful throughout the game. Um, And at, you know, max rank, I also had access to blood magic. Um, My max rank blood magic skill let me choose a target, and then they would explode, killing themselves instantly and anyone else near them. So, you know, you could clear out an entire room with just one spell. It was really cool. Um, and then, you know, different clans have other effects. So, Patrick, who did you pick? So, I played as Terador, which are basically vampire fuckboys. they are um, got high char- charisma, good at seducing, intimidation, persuasion, that kind of thing. Um, all of their powers seem to be geared towards being good at guns, and so that's how I played them as. They've got an ability that slows down time, which at max level turns bullets into projectiles so you can dodge them. And then they've got another ability which basically just buffs their stats and lets them see other vampires and lets them kill things more effectively. So I probably chose the most basic and boring um, vampire class because I wanted to, 
you know, be good at speech, essentially. Um, and then into the late game, I transitioned into shooting people with guns. So we probably ended up having a fairly similar combat gameplay. Um, I, too, ended up putting a lot of points into weapons um, because when I saw the melee gameplay, I wasn't too enthralled by it. So I ended up having maxed um, guns as well. Um, although I did have max blood magic, which meant that the most of the time, if there was a room full of enemies, I was just casting one spell and blowing them all up. Um, I also had access to blood shield, which made me take reduced damage in combat, which was really good. Uh, blood strike, which was like, like uh, you kind of like target an enemy and it shoots them with blood, um, which is the main resource of this game. Um, and, you know, with that and guns together, you could take down bosses fairly quickly. Other than that, I ended up, because I had tra Trance, the ability that puts people to sleep for like 10 seconds, I did end up using Stealth a lot more than I had been planning to. Like, I had kind of gone into my character thinking that I would, you know, go in guns and magic blazing the entire time, but because putting a guard to sleep and then slipping past them was just so powerful. I found myself using that more and more. And then near the end of the game, um, and we'll get into this, we'll talk a bit about in the combat in depth, um, but I found that the combat so mediocre and unappealing that, you know, I'd planned to transition out of stealth, so I'd put like 10 points into magic and like heaps of points into guns, um, despite having all of those points into combat, I stealthed most of the game just so I could avoid the combat. The combat in this game is fucking terrible. Yeah. Like, however bad you think it is, it's worse. I would rate this combat below System Shock 1. I would say there are parts of this game where the combat is comparable to JRPG combat. Oh like, it's that tedious <laughs> and dull and boring to go through. Um, even with max guns, the game's combat fucking sucks and I hate it. And you have to spend a huge chunk of this game either shooting enemies or stealthing past them. I hate the gameplay of this game. It's terrible. And I have a long list of reasons why. I broadly agree. I think it gets some points back in, uh, like, the creativity kind of aspect. Like... Uh, when I did have the max level blood magic, it was kind of fun just to blow up like 20 people with one spell. That was really satisfying. And the guns, however, felt like shit to use from start to finish, even when I was maxed. Like, it's not just that you're kind of inaccurate, because you do get pretty accurate once you've got, you know, max, although it's not great still. The real problem for me is that guns have like such a tiny you know you get to shoot a few shots and then you have to reload and the reload animation is so long on every gun that you spend like the majority of each fight like reloading i feel like barely getting shots off um it was really frustrating i really wish that they like clip sizes or whatever were a lot bigger um in addition like enemies don't react a lot to bullets they just kind of like stand there until they eventually die it doesn't really feel good. Um, one thing I did like was that the main the main resource, other than health in this game, is blood, because of course you're a vampire and you need it to cast spells and do all sorts of stuff. Um, and so what you do is you can walk up to people, anybody, and kind of like feed on them, which is like almost like a grab attack, um, which like has you grabbing onto them for about five to ten seconds. 
uh, to drain that blood. And I kind of felt like when I was using my magic and I didn't have to deal with the shitty shooting, the, the like kind of going back from, you know, magic to trying to grab somebody to get blood back was kind of fun. Um, it was especially good in stealth because I think that the like feeding on people mechanic works really well with the stealth gameplay. Um, but like you said, for the most part, uh, I got to agree, this game was at its absolute worst in the combat sections. And that's a big reason as to why the sewers and the other primarily combat focused scenarios like uh, going into the hotel to fight the Sabbat was just generally dreadful because it was fucking boring and tedious and painful. Yeah, so the thing to understand about how the shooting works is that the enemies are like borderlands enemies in that they have a lot of hp so with the exception of one gun you can't just shoot an enemy once and they die um if you're using any sort of automatic weapon including the supposedly super powerful style org it's still going to take like 12 bullets to kill someone a lot of the time there'll be like five enemies in a room and it takes 12 of your 30 bullets to kill someone and it just feels awful. You're just pouring in damage into their torso. Um, a lot of the guns are inaccurate to the point where you can't easily go for repeat headshots. And it's far better to go for center of body mass, which is unsatisfying and unenjoyable. And you're just sitting there clicking that body. A lot of the guns have long delays between their shots. Every time you take a shot, you have to wait three years before taking another shot. It is incredibly unsatisfying. It doesn't even come close. Like I said... System Shock 1, literally more enjoyable combat than, than what's in this game. I wouldn't go that far. I would very I would snap it off going that far because at least in System Shock 1, you had a strategy to deal with hit scanning enemies, which was to go to the corner and kind of shoot the edge of that hitbox. Um, you also had tools like grenades, which gave you AoE damage. That that's the, that's the other problem with this game. It gives you these guns but it doesn't give you grenades or any sort of like aoe kind of damage well i mean i think that's your clan specifically not having access to that right because aoe damage was all i did yeah yeah but but what what should happen in games like this is that they should provide way you know different ways to give you aoe damage whether it's through tools and weapons or through spells and powers so that you can augment whatever your speciality is with those tools and you can make grenades expensive or rare or however you want to balance that so that it's not so that your clan still feels special but just the complete absence of a way to deal with those problems quickly was very frustrating. Yeah, so I can see how it'd be even worse for you than it was me because what would I what I would do because I got access to Blood Boil, um, like just before Chinatown, so in Hollywood. So in Chinatown, there's this fight that happens kind of early where there's this warehouse and like thirty dudes pour in, and it's just yep. it must have been a clusterfuck for you. You know how I beat that. I cast one spell and it beat the whole fight. Um, 
<laughs> so I didn't have yeah, to. <laughs> so I um, so I just um used my slowdown time power and just shot people. Basically, it would have taken so long to like do that one by one. Yeah, and the thing is, you kind of align yourself in weird choke points so that you can only be exposed to one enemy at a time, and you kind of jiggle fat back and forth to avoid bullets. And yeah, it's it's not good. It's it's not not even remotely enjoyable, and it took me a few quick loads to get through it successfully. I'm I'm pretty down on the combat too, but I think you're a lot more down on it than me because of your your clan. Like I had a lot of options during combat, like put being able to mm. crowd control large like enemies at will. There there was a couple seconds delay between being able to cast it, but I could put multiple people to sleep. Um, one thing I did a lot was like if I had to reload, I'd put someone to sleep while I reloaded so they couldn't like just get free hits on me. Um, it was really useful during stealth, like I said. Um, even during like trying to like feed, you could put cops to sleep and then just like get blood from people in the middle of the streets. I think mm-hmm. the game's mechanics get points back from like an RPG point of view, where you get to do a lot of interesting things. Except when you don't. <laughs> yeah, except when you don't, um, and when it puts you into combat. It's really weird. So the game should know, the people making this game should know that the combat's not the strength of the game because the vast majority of the start of the game is, you know, non-combat scenarios. There's like, uh, the first one is like you go to this little beach house and there's like this small house with like four people in it. And to me, that's like the perfect size of combat for this game because it's not very good. Like I'm okay to do it a little bit, you know, in order to roleplay the stats on my character and be like, I killed them with guns or I killed them with a wrench. That's fine. But when there are long combat sections, they're fucking long for some reason. Like, they go for, like, multiple hours. And I don't know why that's the case. Even games with good combat kind of don't have these, like, little scenarios go for that long. So I just think it's a huge misstep and a massive mark against the game. So... I actually have a serious criticism of the um, of the level design in, in this regard as well, um, and kind of the gameplay spaces in which you play in. So, James, I know I know you haven't played Deus Ex, uh, but I can't help but reference Deus Ex because I think that Deus Ex kind of demonstrates how to do level design uh, that facilitates different kind of play styles, and. Um, I'll very briefly talk about the very first mission of Deus Ex, so I'm not spoiling anything too major, which is um, which is terrorists have taken over control of the Statue of Liberty, and you need to get in there and take out the um the terrorist leader who's at the top of the Statue of Liberty, and in that mission you have all the, you kind of are on the outside of the perimeter, and you have all these different approaches you can take. You have different guns. There's rocket launchers. You can use grenades. You can stealth past. You have different people to speak to who will tell you secrets about how to get in there. There's even non-lethal ways to do things. Um, there are optional objectives. There are like four different entry points at different levels in this in this thing. And the mission only ends when you get to the top. But how you get to that top is a journey in and of itself. And you can use all of the tools at your disposal, you know, hacking and, you know, lockpicking doors and all this kind of stuff. Vampire the Masquerade, on the whole, doesn't really do any of this. It says, here's point A, here's point B, and you're mostly going to go down a linear route to get there. 
I will say there are a couple of exceptions. The one that comes to mind is the one where you have to plant the explosives in an early machine on the Sabat desk where there are a couple of alternate routes. That was going to be my counterpoint because I think that mission was good level design. I yes. thought that one was good because there are a bunch of different ways that you can get to the office because you've got to plant a bomb in this executive's office and you know you can either stealth through the whole level or you can go in guns blazing. There's a couple of hidden passages that you know there's a skill called investigation and if it's high there'll be these glowing sparkles on like points of interest. And while this doesn't seem... That's probably awful for repeat playthroughs, but I my investigation was quite high um, to begin with. So I found all these extra secret passages that were just, like, blended into the background that I wouldn't have seen uh, without that skill. Like, there was this, like, panel line against the wall that I had to lift up to open a hole that I could crawl through. Like, it was a really fun level. I was like, if that level design... You know, I don't think it's as good as, you know, what you're describing in Deus Ex, but if that had been present throughout the whole game, then I would be much higher on, you know, the gameplay as a whole. I, I think that's fair. I, d I don't want to hold everything up to the impeccable standard that is Deus Ex, but and I, I wouldn't expect this game to match it perfectly um, because it's it's far stronger on the story and characterization styles uh, side. I just think that that's as good as it gets. And I think that for the most part, it kind of just declines from there or is like a little bit below that quality until you get to the end stretch of the game and it just becomes complete garbage. Um, these are Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines is for the most part a very linear game and you don't have while you have a lot of options with your role playing in terms of what the story does with your side quests and stuff in terms of how good this is as a as a as a role playing game in these gameplay spaces i think it's quite poor and um i i didn't enjoy much of the gameplay on on display here yeah, I'm kind of mixed because there's like there's gameplay other than the combat because there's like combat corridors, basically, uh, which I think is what sucks. But then there's the gameplay that's like during the quests where you're like exploring these interesting places and picking up and reading things um, and, you know, progressing through the level in somewhat of a non-linear way. Like I reckon when you're like trying to figure out where to go and you're talking to people to get information, that's when the gameplay is good. Um, I will say that with the stat system for the most part i found it to be pretty rewarding to level up like whenever i got a chunk of experience points i did really enjoy unlocking like little abilities for my character to use maybe it was more interesting for me because i had a whole bunch of crazy interesting spells that i had access to as tremere um there is one kind of topic i wanted to talk about so Something I find extremely unsatisfying in games with progression systems like this is when you need to spend points to maintain a skill. So what I mean by this is, with magic, for example, every time I got a new point in magic, I got a new skill, and that was really awesome. The way these games tend to do, like, persuasion checks is, like, when you put your first skill into persuade, you are now able to persuade a couple of NPCs to do something. If you don't continue putting points into that skill, 
the further into the game you kind of lose the ability to persuade people because you haven't been putting in like the mandatory maintenance cost of this skill you're not getting anything new really by leveling up persuasion or intimidate you're just kind of like retaining it and it's really not as satisfying as you know getting an extra point in guns and now being able to use a new gun or getting a new point in magic and getting a new spell i just found it kind of annoying that like halfway through the game i was all of a sudden not getting these dialogue options i don't know how else you're really meant to do it like skill checks are an essential part of rpg systems because the thing is it's the same for lock picking and it's the same for hacking. You you don't want... The game doesn't want you to be able to do everything. So you make a choice as to what you're good at, whether that's, you know, speech craft or hacking or lockpicking or whatever. And then, you, um, and then you're good to go. It works best for me at the start of the game when you have a limited number of skill points and you're, you know, you're allocating points to get through certain areas. Like, you remember that there was a computer you know, over in this room, so you put a point into hacking and now you can activate the computer. It kind of persisted like that a bit on the way to the mid-game, but by end-game, I felt like, I don't know, I was just, like, putting points in at random because I had too many of them um, just to order to keep up with the game. Okay, I I kind of... So... I don't have a problem with this system at all. Uh, it's it's something that I think really works best when the combat is good, though, because the way I approached the combat skill points was was never, I want to get better at combat. It was that if I don't put these points in combat, I'm going to run out of ammo or I'm going to find these scenarios too difficult to get through. Because I like the idea that if I invest in lock picking and hacking, which is what I always tend to do in these games, that I get access to alternate routes and I get access to um, deeper lore than I would normally get access to. There's a fantastic tidbit um, in the Chinatown section that you can go only access with the max hacking skill, which was like a little a little sneak peek of what was to come later. I, I mean, James, I don't really know what an alternative to this is. You, you don't want your player character to be good at everything. So if you don't continue to invest in those skills, you won't be able to, you know, unlock the high level doors. Like what what, what are you suggesting we do instead? I guess what I kind of want from these games is like, it's always such a binary thing, right? It's like you have it or you don't. There's no, like with combat, you get a bit of extra damage and you always have that bit of extra damage. With conversations, I feel like it should be like, if you have a high charisma, You can use one sentence to convince this guy to do what you want. But if it's not quite high enough, you kind of have to like... Because it does this throughout the game where you'll have these conversations that aren't tied to your stat, but you still have to like pick a series of correct options in order to convince the character. That Mm. feels a lot better to me than just picking this one line that, you know, opens the lock to this character's heart instantly. Like, maybe if I'm not that charismatic, I need to put extra effort into the conversation to get what I want. But, you know, obviously that requires a lot of extra effort put into the game. Perhaps the issue is more, and this is, again, going back to that idea of gaming spaces, 
So if you have a well-designed gaming space that has lots of options and ways to interact with it, having binary checks on specific axes of interaction is completely fine. Because if you can't persuade the person at the docks to give you the password to get through the back door, well that's okay because you can climb over the, you know, you can climb over these crates into this vent if you're good enough to spot it or you can uh, hack the computer system be- by bribing a person who tells you the location of a weakness in their network or whatever. If you've got a well-crafted gaming space where there's lots of ways to do different things to attack different weaknesses, then failing a check at location Y is completely fine. I agree with what you're saying, um, but for me, like the experience that I had was that I began the game... Um, and I started putting points into like persuasion and intimidate. And then, you know, by the end of the game, I realized that it was more fun to put points into uh, magic because it actually gave me something for my investment. And then at the end of the game, I realized combat sucked and all my points were nothing. <laughs> and I just like put some points into stealth and like dealt with that. So I guess maybe it was just because the co- like a symptom of the combat being bad that, you know, uh, my investments ended up feeling, you know, kind of wasted. That, that's what I think it might be because the the game I kept thinking of was um, was Fallout New Vegas because that's a game, you know, it's got a similar skill point system. You can't be good at everything, but you can choose what to be good at. And every time I've played that game, it never feels bad to put points into combat skills. It's not like the combat system is a masterpiece or anything, but I always have a high-level rifle skill or a high-level melee skill um, all the time, and it always feels good and I always feel rewarded for putting points into them. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like you need to work on, like, the game system needs to reward you for whatever you happen to invest in, you know, with some obvious exceptions, of course. But, uh, yeah, Vampire's combat is so shit that it... it uh, kind of ruins the overall experience so before we go to the next music break i just wanted to touch on the stealth um so on this show i reckon stealth is probably the game genre we've covered the most at this point um and the stealth in this game i found to be okay but lacking in a lot of places so it does have this kind of like light meter um, that tells you, you know, how visible you are, and that changes depending on the, you know, the illumination you're standing in. I found it to be really hard to judge how invisible I was going to be if I moved like a meter forward until I did it and read the number on the side. Uh, I didn't think the patches of darkness were like as deliberate as they were in other games we've played so far like i like thief and splinter cell and that's fine because this game is you know going for a much what casting its net much wider and trying to do a lot of different things but i did find it like pretty unsatisfying uh the fact that like i put enough points in stealth and now i'm literally invisible like i can be pushing my character into another character and they're sliding on the floor and they can't tell that i'm there Yeah, I think the problem is that we've played a lot of stealth games now and having stealth tied to your abilities as a player is so much more satisfying than having it tied to a statistic. You know, it's like my stealth stat is high, therefore I'm invisible is just boring compared to 
I'm going to study this patrol route and I'm going to, you know, look at where the shadows are, figure out where my space to hide is, look at, you know, what their line of sight is like. In Vampire, when your stealth is low, if you walk behind someone while crouching completely stealthily, they'll turn around. They'll just turn around. Um, you can't walk behind someone too close to them undetected. They'll see you through objects sometimes, like you'll be behind a bin and they'll know you're there and they'll detect you. Uh, and then you get your stealth level high enough and you're invisible. Um, it also suffers from the problem of stealth uh, and escaping from stealth being binary. So you go into stealth, you you know shoot one person, and then every single person in the area is alerted to your presence. And it's like, well, I guess it's time to shoot every single person with a gun. Such fun. I think there's a happy middle ground. Like, when you have points in lockpicking, you can now do lockpicking when you have enough points that you can engage in combat, now you can engage in combat, but you don't win combat automatically. You still have to, like, use your player ability to navigate the combat scenario, right? I think putting points into stealth should open up the stealth gameplay to you, but then there should still be, you know, a greater degree of player agency over the skill, right? Like, you should be able to... You know, and there was a little bit of that, but just like not enough for me. I, I kind of think having a stealth skill in a game is just completely redundant and unnecessary. Um, Deus Ex has no stealth skill whatsoever, and I enjoyed its stealth gameplay, poor as it was, more than I did in Vampire. And that's because there was no stat tied to it. So it was this consistent thing that I learned to understand and then could interact with. Um, Vampire went from being confusing and hard to understand and annoying to broken, you know, just as I leveled the skill up. And neither of those is is fun. So, yeah, just just remove the stealth stat and create a better stealth system because, yeah, it's not very good. That said, I don't want to rag on it too hard. Like, I did enjoy the stealth sections a lot more than I enjoyed the combat. Um, it was particularly enjoyable because I only put, like, three points into stealth, so people would look for me, but if I, like, used my magic cleverly to, like, trance people or to, like, send them away, like, I could get through areas. So there was a bit of that, but I feel like I was purposely not putting points into it to avoid that. And then when I put, like, the fourth point into it eventually, it became, you know, just brain-dead easy and it was no fun anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so there was, you know, there was fun to be had with it. I don't want to say it was bad, like the combat is bad, um, but it wasn't great. Um, like, and it was nowhere near on the level that you know the story and the dialogue in this game were. Um, one more note on stealth: the level design is mostly not really designed for stealth. Um, Splinter Cell does linear stealth sections really well. That's something that I would you know point out as his main strength. It's like here's a narrow corridor, but there is enough room if you time your movers correctly to get through i didn't feel like particularly the, the early game sections were better designed but as you move from mid to late game i didn't feel like they gave a shit about stealth gameplay honestly it felt like it was a it was a side note and you were just meant to be carried by a higher stealth skill um and yeah. i didn't have any of uh, james's powers to help me out so it was stealth or bust or you know it was shooting time yes yeah, so, uh disappointing but not awful 
in my opinion. Um, let's go to the next music break and then we can talk a bit more about story spoilers and perhaps about the potential replayability of the game. Um, Patrick, what music do you have for us today? So the one I chose uh, to have a point of uh, comparison and contrast with yours is one of the nightclub themes. And this is the one that plays at the Anak Bar Nine Lives. And um, it just perfectly suits the fuck you uh, atmosphere of the Anarchs, particularly uh, one of the vampires called Damsel, which is just, she's just a complete and utter bitch. And some of the dialogue you have with her is quite hilarious because you start being bitchy to one another and it's great. So this is my favorite piece of club music. It comes from the bar, The Last Round. Patrick, I gotta say, I did not like that character at all. <laughs> I found, like, all of the Anarchs, except maybe, like, Nines, to be kind of infuriating. Like, they just were so bratty and so, so, you know, watching teenagers rebel against their parents the whole time. I, I kind of agree with you. There's, like, this edginess to them that's inappropriate for, I guess, what anarchy actually is in practice. Like... Anarchy is this thing where anarchy as a social, political social system is actually the sophisticated thing where people live in communes and there needs to be a lot of communication and there's all this trade. It's it's not a simple thing and it's not an edgy thing. It's this thing that you need a group of adults all working very hard to achieve. Whereas this version of anarchy was just, yeah, fuck the Camarilla. I just specifically liked when you started to become friends with um, with Damsel, you would start speaking in the same way to her and there were some entertaining back and forths um, where you were just, you know, insulting one another that I enjoyed. I found Nines actually completely insufferable. I thought he was the worst. Um, you ask him, have you, have you spoken to the Camarilla? And he cocks his gun and he goes this is what I want to say to him. And I was like, I don't want to be on this guy's team. Like, this is fucking ridiculous. And then when I made fun of him, he's like, all right, I guess you don't want to be an anarch. And that's the end of our conversation. I was like, what? You, you did something ridiculous and I justifiably made fun of you. <laughs> yeah, you'd expect like something a bit, you know, calmer and more sophisticated, not the 
fucking edgy teenager vibe the Anarchs are throwing at you. Yeah, I thought Smiling Jack was probably my favourite of the Anarchs. I think yes. he's like one of the most entertaining characters uh, in the game. Um, who he you know he takes you through the tutorial and he's got like a lot of personality. Uh, he's really like laid back and likes having a laugh at everything. Uh, I think he was a great character. Shall we? Shall we talk about some spoilers, James? Yes. So Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines, uh, very. Sp- you know story driven experience so if you do want to go play it and you know i will say that despite how shit the combat is it is a game still worth your time if you do want to play it i would strongly recommend you go play that game before listening to this discussion yeah short version vampire masquerade bloodlines has incredible characterization from the voice acting to the dialogue some of the better writing i've seen in video games full stop really really good um, it has a really good logical world. I mean, I know it's vampires and stuff, but it feels, you know, fairly grounded and realistic. It's not fantastical stuff. And um, yeah, the narrative presentation of the world is really good, but the gameplay fucking sucks. It just does. And people who try to downplay it, I mean, you're going to be spending a lot of time engaging with the gameplay when you play this game. All that said, it's probably still worth your time. Like, the story is just that good. But just be aware you're going to have to slug through some garbage. Um, Yeah, it gets a recommend from me as well. But yeah, it's just the gameplay is real bad. And be aware of that when you go in. All right. So, Pat, where did you want to get into with the spoilerific discussion first? So I think the first thing I want to talk about is the central conflict and um, why I really quite like it. So... The central conflict of um, a Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines surrounds this ancient sarcophagus that has been unearthed. And there's a lot of speculation as to what's in the sarcophagus. Some people think that if it gets opened, um, the end of the world is upon us. Some people think that there's an ancient vampire in there and that if the person who controls it and can open the sarcophagus will be able to drink the blood of that ancient vampire and become uber mega powerful because uh vampires can steal others powers if they drink another vampire's blood so there's all these theories and conspiracies it's always getting stolen and moved from group to group and everyone's vying over it but in the end it gets revealed that there was just a random king there and everything that happened all of the struggles and powers and fights and deaths and horrible things that happened were over fucking nothing and i thought that was a wonderful ending because it showed that the struggles all the struggles that occurred were ultimately over the perception of power not over anything real i thought it was um was a really neat take on on the on the story well the way the ending's supposed to go is that it's actually one of the characters well two of the characters actually set the whole story up from the very beginning um, and it was like a t- like they were trying to cause a big power struggle between the two major factions, um, and they did obviously succeed. There's multiple endings in this game, and the one I got was that I disposed of the Camarilla's head, Sebastian Lacroix, and I put in the the Primarch of my clan as the leader of the 
um, the Camarilla instead because I mm. thought that, you know, the idea of the Camarilla made sense. It's just its leader was a cunt bag. Um, so that one made a lot of sense. In that ending, the sarcophagus is not opened because, you know, throughout the game, there's this big idea that, you know, people want to open it and people don't want it opened. Um, and the leader, the new leader of the Camarilla decides that it's best to leave it closed and the sarcophagus gets put in this warehouse forever. Um, so I don't know if you watched all the endings, but I watched all the endings for the review. Mm. In a lot of the endings, um, the sarcophagus does get opened. Um, and when they open the sarcophagus, what's inside it is C4. Um, somebody has taken out the mummified king and put, filled it with C4. And then the, you know, the big Camarilla headquarters just explodes. That's the ending. And then, you know, laughing, it looks like Smiling Jack was the guy who did it because it zooms out and he's sitting there on his chair laughing as the building explodes. And so obviously, you know, this guy set the game up from the very beginning. He was the guy who gave you the tutorial. He knew what was going on from the start. And I like the idea of this. I like the idea that everything was just this huge, you know, deceptive manipulation um, a, a big game of you know Chinese whispers of people manipulating each other and wondering what's in the sarcophagus. That was great. Um, I think the actual execution of the endings is quite lacking because I feel like they must have ran out of budget or something near the end because the quality nosedives and like the animation quality and the like the length that the endings go for just didn't feel satisfying to me. Um, I just like my whole like 30 hour journey comes to this like you know this climax and it just kind of like fizzled out for me I didn't really uh, enjoy um, the presentation of these I think that's fair and I think that part of the problem is that everything leading up to the ending instead of it being a dialogue filled encounter it's just an endless combat slog where you fight through one group of bad guys, then you fight through another group of bad guys and another group of bad guys. It's just it's just endless combat scenarios. And I think that if they had stuck to the dialogue and if the dialogue built up to that inevitable conclusion and there was maybe a non-lethal way of getting through or predominantly non-lethal way of getting through those final sections of the game, it could have been a lot more satisfying. I just did like how... It was basically a struggle over phantom power and how it showed that it only takes that, you know, that illusion of power to to cause all of the chaos that occurred. When when the sarcophagus opened, I was also a little disappointed it was a meme ending too. Um, I thought that the like the way they built it up to that um, scenario was really cool. Um, it did seem kind of off to me that Beckett, one of the most like down-to-earth characters, all of a sudden was freaking out about of it, about the sarcophagus all of a sudden, because throughout the story, and I think Beckett's probably my favorite character, um, he's this like really old vampire who's, I guess, interested in ancient history, and like he doesn't kind of strike me as like a boring scientific type of character, but he is quite like logical and pragmatic he's a despite scholar despite that yeah he's yeah it's funny because you kind of mention that to him and he says like he says he doesn't like the idea of scholarship or something like that he's not like because there's grout the leader of the malkavians who's much more you know he's like a psychologist and he's very to the point i don't think 
Beckett's that same style of character, right? No, no, no. I mean, he's a completely different character. He's a he's a historian. Is maybe a better better label for him. He wants to understand history and society and how vampires came to be, but in a scientific uh, informed way. Um, Grout is a very different take on that character. A very <laughs> hilarious take that I liked quite a lot. Those two were probably my favorite characters. Yeah, Grout Grout was great. It's so hard to pick to pick a favorite character. Like, um, I loved what one of the moments where which was funny, I sent a message to James saying, James, we can't um we can't talk about this episode uh with spoilers. And that was the reveal that Jean and Jeanette were in fact, one person with a split personality disorder, which I didn't see coming. I don't know about you, James, but yeah, the reveal was was fantastic, and um, and I loved like both of their characters were brilliant, and that whole conversation scene was um was really fun, uh, particularly getting agreeing to get them to uh work together and to continue to coexist in in the way they did. I don't know if you were able to get that ending. Yeah, to I managed it. to convince them to continue to live. Um because yeah. they were like they were holding a gun to their head. Yeah. <laughs> and they were like threatening to blow each other's brains out even, you know, they shared the same body. It was quite funny. I did quite like that as well. Cuz Jeanette has her hair pinned back and Jean has the um the pigtails and when when you've got this final thing, their face it's like a two face situation where half the face is Jean and the other's Jeanette, and it's it's just very effective. Um, it's stuff like that that makes this game just brilliant. Like that that was such a fantastic story. The the whole thing, the dialogue loved its pieces. Um, I I also quite liked Gary, the Nosferatu leader. Um, oh yeah, he was kind of great. Like he's invisible for the most time, and then. Like the camera kind of like zooms in on this point. There's this table with these skeletons on them, and there's this one empty spot. And you know he's invisible, so the camera like zooms in um, on the empty seat, like he's sitting there and he's talking to you. And then like you whirl around, and he was actually behind you the whole time. I thought that was really funny. One of the things the game does really well with its characters is that vampires are functionally immortal right so you get to encounter all of these vampires from different eras of history like whether they're a vietnam war vet or they're thousands of years old or um if they're like gary who seems to be from like the 30s like old school hollywood um and yeah so you get this great variety of mannerisms from all these different characters from different time periods yeah, and they pull it off really well too. Um, there was this one character, Pisha, is that her name? She's like, unlike other vampires, she has to like persist off of eating human flesh. So mm-hmm. she like captures a bunch of characters. And I thought that her her character from like a morality point of view was really cool because like she has to eat people to live and it has to be like live humans. So, you know, uh, she's... And she kind of like doesn't like taking sides and she's like she's got these glowy eyes that kind of like are really unnerving when she's talking to you and her mouth's always full of gore. Uh, But she's like still, despite being so like animalistic as a really pragmatic character, I thought she was really entertaining to talk to. One of the things I wanted to talk to, James, was about the um, ethics and morality of this game. Because I think one of the things that's unique about this game is that there is no good path. Like in a lot of RPGs, 
the world is threatened by an ancient evil and you need to oppose, you know, by default, you oppose the ancient evil. So it kind of becomes this thing where you by default just kind of want to go along with the program when people are trying to organize to stop the ancient evil. One of the things I thought was really interesting about this game is that you are kind of not stopping any ancient evil. You're just involved in a power struggle and the morality of many of the things you're doing isn't like I'm doing this good thing to save the world. It's well, I'm doing this thing because I need more cash to buy ammo. And that's the default uh, moral stance. And you really have to look hard to find moments of humanity where you can do things that are actively good. Yeah, I played a pretty high humanity style character because you can lose or gain like humanity depending on your actions. Um, so, you know, if you feed on humans, you have to like try and leave them alive and that kind of thing. Like, like there was this, this side quest near the end of the game where there are these two retired hitmen um, who have this like stashed money somewhere under the ground, but they both have a key to the money, um, but they hate each other now. And you'd like, you can either like play them off against each other and they're like, I'll give you 10% of the money if you kill that guy. And then you like go between the two of them and eventually it's like, I'll give you 50% of the money. And then, like, I ended up, because I think the way you can do it is you can end up killing them both, getting the key and taking the money. But I, through my dialogue, ended up convincing them to become friends again, um, which was kind of funny. Um, I don't know. I think, uh, I like, I agree with you. I like that the game's, like, focuses on the gritty side stories and not, like, you being a hero. You're just, like, a guy and the employee of someone powerful, but you're not the main actor by any stretch the um the other thing i wanted to bring up was more of like a gameplay consideration in relation to that um there is an incentive in rpg games to do something instead of doing nothing because doing something even if it's morally dubious may lead to interesting story stuff right um, and that's how I felt about that girl, you know, you're talking about Pisha in the abandoned hospital, where she wanted me to, you know, bring an innocent human for her to feast upon. And my entire thought process was, well, I can do nothing, or I can give her an innocent human to feast upon, and then maybe there's some story there. So I got her an innocent person to feast upon. Uh, I scared the shit out of that guy, so he ran away, and then I told her I ate him. Ah, uh, okay. So you did find a, a good a good way to do it. Well, I didn't because when I found after he ran away, I think he was in his hotel room. So uh, yeah. So but I felt that in this game there was this push to engage in these morally dubious actions, not because. I had a choice between a morally dubious and a morally good action, but because the choice was between the morally dubious action and no action at all. And no action at all is kind of boring. Yeah, it's like it kind of like defaulted to like trying to convince you to do bad stuff like all the time. Um, like there's this character who you can save from on a hospital bed by giving her some of your blood. Um, and then later in the game, she'll come to you and be like, I am now 
like in love with you and want to devote my life to you and she basically becomes your like servant i guess or mm-hmm. slave or something slave she just is kinda, probably more accurate yeah she just kind of like lived in my apartment and there was this really great bit where i went back to my apartment to check my emails and like she'd grabbed some guy off the street and locked him in the bathroom for you to feed on she's like am i doing good <laughs> so so fucked it's so funny and you said yes you were doing well my pet and ate him right yeah absolutely nice <laughs> well i i ate most of him and then i was like put him back where you found him and she's like yes <laughs> sir <laughs> it's like when uh it's like when your bird your cat not when your bird when your cat brings in a dead bird you're like good cat good cat good cat yeah <laughs> please don't do that again <laughs> um well should we talk about replayability a bit james i mean that's kind of the last thing isn't it um so one of the things that people say one of the famous like quotes on the internet is that anytime somebody mentions this game somebody reinstalls it um and i gotta say through looking at other people's gameplay and through reading through the characters it looks like there's a lot of extra stuff that you can do in this game with repeated playthroughs like it sounds like we had pretty substantially different experiences and i know that two of the vampire clans uh malkavian and nosferatu are recommended for people to only play on repeat playthroughs because it kind of doesn't work if you do it your first try and from what i've seen of them like they look really really different to the usual playthroughs of the game so uh you know i think it's pretty good right yeah i i think that so much of the experience playing this game is kind of locked in at character creation which to me is a bit of a problem in some ways like i think that my my preferred way for these games to work is that you should that should be like a baseline and then there are different tools and ways to augment your character and kind of maybe not remove that weakness but kind of complement that weakness whereas in vampire i felt very locked in from level one you know to playing my character in a particular way just because that's what my powers were like but as james said it does mean that next time i play this game if i play this game again i really would love to do a nosferatu playthrough i think that that would offer unlike any of the other characters like a fundamentally different gameplay experience uh because i mean the other option of his course is the malkavians which offers you like a lot of cool dialogue and easter eggs and stuff but I don't know if I could manage the um the shitty combat again in the same way. I mean, yeah, like from what I can see, like if you play Malkavian, you get all sorts of cool stuff happen. Like your TV has a conversation with you, and like there's all sorts of weird like you know conversations with inanimate objects and people because you hear voices, and that and like all the the dialogue doesn't make sense. It looks awesome, honestly. I'm actually really keen to do a malkavian playthrough in the future i mean Um, my only concern is that it's just making the good part of the game better or the good part of the game different whereas it doesn't change the bad parts of the game at all and and that's that's the thing like you're still on some level gonna have to engage with this combat every single time you play this game so i mean maybe just max stealth and then you can just skip most of it i don't know I mean, that's what I tried to do. I reckon if you stop playing, like, before... I reckon if you skip the sewers, like, you just turn no clip on and you just fly through it. 
and then you i thought the i thought that the equation temple was okay um i i thought that was fine i think that if you just stop playing like after that um then you know you're probably just gonna have a much better time like you just skip the sewers and then stop once the game starts nosediving and you can do like the majority of the fun content minus you know all of the shitty combat corridors yeah i think if you stop at the you know at that point where you have to go into the hotel and fight the sabbat that's probably the best place to stop because it's you fight through that entire hotel which is just endless corridors copy pasted with rooms over and over and over and then you have to fight the chinese and then you have to finally do the final slog on lacroix's manner and you're just so sick of shooting people with guns by the end of it is i also want to say um the fight against ming zhao fucking sucks what the fuck worst boss fight i've seen in like years so so what was it like for you because for me i put on my max level celerity which is my speed power up and i just circle strafed behind her with a shotgun a flamethrower and a magnum and i use a lot of ammo but literally never a threat to me at all just killed her first try yeah so the the room's shaped like an oval like a really thin oval and i didn't move very fast and she shoots these like puddles that slow you so you mm. kind of just get like stuck and this game has a real problem with moving over cluttered floor, by the way. Like, if there's anything on the ground, your character's going to get stuck on it, and it's going to be a pain in the ass to walk through the room. Um, this was extra bad here, because there are these, like, pillars that have stuff on top of them, and they get thrown around the room, and suddenly the floor has all these objects on them that are stopping you from walking, so you're getting hit by attacks you shouldn't be, uh... It just felt like shit, and she's such a fucking bullet sponge, too. It oh, just, she, like, she, she has so has much health. So much health, yeah. and it's so boring and repetitive, and it goes for so long. I just... Garbo. Complete Garbo. Once I got my speed power up up high, the boss, every single boss fight was utterly trivial, because, you know, I was moving so fast, and I could just circle strafe around them, get close to them, empty ammo into them, and then they, you know, disappear and teleport to the next place or whatever. So um, there was one boss early on I really struggled with, um, the the Priest of the Blood Cult uh, that I kind of had to cheese to defeat. But other than that, boss fights were literally a breeze, never a problem. That boss took me like 10 goes, I reckon, until I realized I needed to be spamming bloodshot and guns to empty his health fast enough, then it was easy. I found a trick that if I was crouching up and down behind a table, um, he wouldn't move. So I could shoot a bullet, crouch, he'd shoot a shotgun, and I just repeated that about, oh, I don't know, 60 times, or however long it was, but probably more than that. Oh, uh, you would have found the there's like this priest with a sniper rifle near the end of the game. You would have found that really easy because you just zoom up to him every time. Um, yeah, I mean, I wasn't really using the um. Oh, you mean the fight against the priest with the sniper rifle? I actually he got I just shot one style or uh shot at him at a time because every time he takes damage, he gets a shield that protects him from damage for three seconds. So you can't spam him down with bullets. Yeah, so but if you, you just... use the org, it does like eight damage a shot. Whereas yep. like if you run up to him with the shotgun, you can do like 30 with one shot or something. So it goes a lot yeah. quicker. But when I got him to half health, I got him caught 
just shooting me while I was behind cover that he couldn't hit me on. So I just spent the three to four minutes it took me to just shoot him one bullet at a time. It was just like, I can't be bothered running around in circles anymore. Sounds worse than Lunar to me. Uh, I mean, honestly, it's not that far off. Like, I, and you know how much I hate Lunar. Like, I don't want to defend this combat. It's made me, like, Deus Ex's combat is so much better than this. And I I don't even think it's very good. Mostly because all the enemies kind of die in one bullet. And by the time you get to enemies that don't die in one bullet, you've got. Like, the game gives you rocket launchers and grenades on level 1, so by the time you get to those tough enemies, you have so many different ways to kill them, it's it's absurd. So, yeah, it's, this game is... By comparison, it just doesn't give you anything... I mean, with the class I played, at least, it didn't really give me anything outside of just pouring ammo into enemies. Yeah, combat sucked. Um, I've pretty much filled out all of my notes now did you want to move on to final impressions yeah let's do it what do what did you think of the game james so vampire the masquerade bloodlines has some of the best writing and character interaction in a game that i've ever played and it also has some of the worst most mind-numbing combat of any game i've ever played however I think that the characterization and the dialogue and the voice acting and the story of this game is so good that it is better than the combat is bad. Uh, I think that Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines shows you what story-driven games should be. I think it does this better than most games do today, even. Like, I think the characterization in this game is superb, and I think a large part of that is due to the limited scope that this game works in. This isn't a big open-world game with 100 NPCs. This is a small, you know, tight, compact game with a few really strong, you know, well-thought-out characters with some excellent writing and dialogue. And, you know, I think this is the gold standard for characterization when it comes to RPGs, in my opinion. Um, I think that Vampire the Masquerade is absolutely worth playing through, and it's probably worth playing through a couple of times even for the different options that you have access to. Honestly, if you play this game, I completely recommend you using cheats to skip some of the combat sections. They just fucking suck. Just turn no clip on and just fly through the combat. Just fucking skip it. It's not worth it. But the characters absolutely are, so... I'm definitely recommending this game, uh, but I think you should play it, uh, you know, with some alterations to, you know, save yourself some pain. I also recommend Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines on the strength of its uh, storytelling, characterization, um, and dialogue and script, which are all just pretty close to impeccable. Like, I, I loved every time I was interacting with a character, whether they were main character or even the lowliest side character, they just have all been given so much personality with different dialects, with different patterns to their speech. It, it's really incredible and well done. Uh, where it falls apart is the gameplay. And it's not just the combat. Like, the combat is a new level of atrociousness, but the gameplay just cannot, you know, quite reach the standards of the storytelling. Um, I think a big part of the problem is the fact that you have this suggestion of factional conflict, but really you're kind of railroaded down one path. And while narratively all the missions you're going on are fascinating and some of them are great like i said my favorite one was the one surrounding the snuff tape but there are a few there are many many good stories here like i'd say 80 percent of them are excellent 
Um, from a gameplay perspective, the way that you're interacting with the story and the gameplay flow-on effects of your interactions with the story are basically non-existent. You're just um, you're just going through the paces, and it's enjoyable to experience, but it's not enjoyable to participate in. Uh, the level design is crap. Uh, it's it's fine in parts. It's fine to good in parts, but for the most part, it's uninteresting linear stuff. Don't play Vampire expecting a good gameplay experience. Play it for the story, and if you can put up with the uh, with the gameplay, then you'll find a truly fantastic story and some of the best characters in any video game I've played in my life. Um, it's a recommend, but just be aware of the slog fest you're getting into. And it's really not that far removed to compare the um, the gameplay to that of the JRPGs I so disdain. Well, there you have it. Bit of a mixed bag, but ultimately a good mixed bag. Um, did you want to lead us out, Pat? Yeah, sure. Um, so James and I make up the Retrospectors podcast. Thank you so much for listening to our ramblings on the game tonight. Um, you can find all of our content on our website, rspodcast.net. It has all of our episodes and also a bunch of articles that James and I have written over the years about old games, new games, all kinds of games, including my stunning rejection of the JRPG Lunar Silver Star story. Treat yourself and read it. You'll have a great time. Um, most importantly, we've got links to all of our social media stuff, including our Discord server, and we would love for you to drop by and let us know what you think of Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines. Is there more to the gameplay than James and I are giving it credit, or is there a specific quest that really piqued your interest? Please let us know. We'd love to have an argument with you about it, because arguing about games is our, uh, is our bread and butter. So please, yeah, drop by our Discord server. Um, we'd love to have you. Alrighty then, so that brings us on to what we're playing next week, Pat. So uh, I picked Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines, so it's your turn to pick us some, uh, you know, some quality gameplay to feast on for the next fortnight. So it's time to pay due to one of our Discord server users, uh, Mayday Mima, whose name is currently the Pat of Hitman in reference to my undying love of Dark Souls. He has a similar undying love of Hitman. He first joined the server um, when we put up our Hitman 1 review, which was a very, very negative review, but he still enjoyed it, which we were thrilled to hear. And so we're going to do the sequel to Hitman 1, which is Hitman 2 Silent Assassin. And it will be very interesting to see if they've improved upon the formula of Hitman 1, because James and I were not very high on the... Uh, on the point-and-click puzzle solving that Hitman presented, the untelegraphed point-and-click puzzle solving. So I'm hoping Hitman 2 can improve upon that formula they established all that time ago. Honestly, Pat, if they can put in checkpoints in their game, I will like it a whole lot more than I liked <laughs> the first game. There was nothing worse than going through like an hour of gameplay only to lose everything. Uh, easily the worst part about that game. And I have heard that they do, in fact have checkpoints for this so i assume it is going to be a much less painful process so hoping that we'll enjoy it and that we'll get to uh you know go back to our i guess stealth roots of the show we haven't done one for a little while now i do remember that temple level like that i think is level three or four level four um where you have to go in and assassinate lee lee song or something 
And the number of times I had to restart that level was absurd. Like it, it must have taken me in total like 25 tries because all it takes is one botched attempt to headshot someone and then the whole mission is fucked and, you know, you may as well start over. So, yeah, yeah. having a checkpoint system would be greatly appreciated. I have similarly uh, mixed feelings about that level and it was actually one of the better ones. So, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully Hitman 2 changes our minds. So um, one final shout out, Uh, we've been in touch with one of the hosts of the Retro Asylum podcast, which is a UK gaming podcast, and we're going to do a collaborative uh, project with them, uh, reviewing Fallout 1, and that's going to come out in May. So we haven't hashed out the exact details yet. But um, we'll have a we'll have a podcast with the Retro Asylum in May, and I'd just like to shout them out. They're a fantastic podcast. I've listened to several of their episodes now, and um, they're on my subscriber list. So you should check them out, and definitely check us them out in May, where we'll be uh, talking about one of the most highly revered RPGs of all time. Uh, doing so many RPGs, Pat. This is odd. Listen, as long as there's no J in the front of them, I think I can put up with. Them. Uh, I think <laughs> I can whip something up in the next couple of weeks. <laughs> Please don't. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, that about sums it up. Thanks to everyone for listening and we'll see you in a fortnight for Hitman 2.